0: Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 12, so uh, feel free to open in them there. Uh, And just to give you some context, this is adapted of what you saw in the bulletin, the outline you may uh, have downloaded, and so just uh, bear with us there. But uh, essentially, Friday night, it was the end of uh, 72 hours of just constant um, figuring out what do we do, crises, have people been exposed, and uh, what have you. By the way, nobody in our congregation uh, has been diagnosed with having had the virus, but uh, there is just angst everywhere. And so Friday night, I just collapsed into bed, and my wife, knowing that uh, I was absolutely exhausted, uh, handed me a, a book that she's been reading called Daily Light on the Daily Path. And so uh, I read uh, what she pointed me to, and, and here's the passage, and it just really struck me. Uh, but it says this, it's from Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Uh, Jehoshaphat is praying, and he says, Oh God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against the great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That was the phrase that jumped out to me where he says, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. How many of us knew what to do this week as more and more news of the coronavirus continued to um, uh, cross our radars? Uh, Here's the questions that uh, I heard or I asked myself. Do we cancel services? Do we call the township? Do these people get tested? Do we go get toilet paper now or later? Do we still go have that medical procedure or that medical test that we need? Children were asking, can I play with my friends? Or how can we help mom and dad not freak out so much? parents ask, should I let my children play with their friends or stuck inside for the next two weeks? What are we going to do there? Should I go out and help my neighbor? Should I self-quarantine? Should I turn the news off? The answer to that last one is probably yes, if you've gotten to the point where you're asking that question. But but the point is, and, and, and what I'm trying to get at here, is just this idea that the reality hit me. The fact that we are asking these questions in this way means that we feel absolutely powerless against the great hordes, uh, as Jehoshaphat prayed, that we felt like were coming against us. For us, it's this virus, these microbes, right, that feel like this great horde that is coming against us. Or maybe it's the person on the toilet paper aisle, I don't know. For Jehoshaphat, it was, it was the Moabites and the Ammonites, these people groups who had gathered these huge armies, and he's going, well, we're not going to make it, Lord. Jehoshaphat, in his prayer, actually references the group of people who we've been studying for the last uh, several weeks out of Deuteronomy, who they themselves were looking across the Jordan into the great unknown at these giants, these people who they're going, Lord, we're not sure we're going to make it. Whether it's viruses or Moabites or Canaanites, whatever they were facing, the, the question is the same, or rather the bewilderment is the same. We don't know what to do. But the response in the midst of the confusion and the fear is the same as what Jehoshaphat began his prayer with. Let me read that part for you. He says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to stand against you. Our eyes are on you. And so friends, we're going to jump back into Deuteronomy 12, into that group group. Uh, who Jehoshaphat actually references in that prayer in Second Chronicles. And we're going to look at it and understand more deeply what it means for the people in Deuteronomy to keep their eyes on the one true God and to worship Him as they look across the river at this great enemy and wonder how they can keep their eyes on Him, even when they don't know what's going to happen. So today in chapter 12, what we're essentially doing is uh, Moses is unpacking the first of the Ten Commandments. We've referenced that uh, here a couple of weeks ago as Ward preached. And that first commandment is, thou shalt have no other God before me. Now let me first start off in referencing this passage in Deuteronomy 12. So again, feel free to open your Bibles there. Here's, here's the first verse I want you to hear. Uh, it's verse 8. It says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes. You see, I think Moses is picking up on very uh, quickly in the lives of the Israelites. As they look into the unknown, there is this temptation for them to restore equilibrium. They very likely would do what was right in their own eyes, just to get back to a sense of sanity or peace. And I feel like we are in that exact same place. We are tempted to do whatever we want to do just to get back to a place of equilibrium. Maybe it's selling off our stocks, right? Maybe it's hoarding toilet paper. Maybe it's running to substance or medicating ourselves with whatever uh, we can medicate ourselves with. Whatever it is, we too have that temptation to do what is right in our own eyes. But here's where Moses is going to lead us today. He's going to lead us to see how in uncertain times we can fix our eyes on the one true god where he says worship me in the way that I will show you you see here's in a way the main point of this whole passage in 121 when god says these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land of the lord the god of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on this earth and so again, let's scrap the outline that I've put in the bulletin. And let me just give you these four simple points. I'll try to rifle through them pretty quickly. But but in order to keep our eyes on the one true God, even when we don't know what to do, right? When we're facing uncertainty, we're going to see Moses point us to four things. He's going to ask us to remove, to replace, to rest, and to rejoice. To remove, replace, to rest. And rejoice. So first, let's look at this idea of remove and pick up with me in verse two, verses two to four. Moses writes this, he says, you shall surely destroy all the places, sorry, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So the first thing God is saying is, hey, in order to fix your eyes on me when you don't know what to do, in order to worship me in that place, the first thing you need to be aware of is there's going to be some removal that needs to happen, particularly of these false gods of the Canaanites as they walk into the land. Did you hear the terms that he used? In verse 2, he said, destroy. Verse 3, he says, tear down. Verse 4, he says, chop down. Now, the whole reason why he wants them to do this is in verse 3. Did you hear it? He said, do it so you can destroy their name out of that place. He's saying, I want you to wipe out the name, the very name of every false god that you come across in Canaan. Now, a God's name equals their presence. And so that's why God is saying, no, you can't mix the two of us. In fact, in verse 4, he says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. He's saying, I am different than every single one of those gods. You cannot synchronize the worship of me and other gods. Beverly tells the story of one of the clearest... Uh, memories in her life when she was 12 years old standing at the back door of her house she sees her father with an axe on his shoulder and he walks out in the back and he takes uh, this Buddha idol who she says for all of my life I've been told don't touch don't touch the Buddha, don't play with the Buddha, it's not a toy, we revere it, we worship it. And so you can imagine that after 12 years of this, when her father walks out back, takes the uh, Buddha idol, lays it on the ground, and holds the axe above his head, and smashes its head off, and then continues to hack as wood, and everything splinters everywhere. That made an impact on Beverly's life. In fact, she says this, she says, As I watched... Through the back door, as my father crushed this idol, one thing became crystal clear: the reality of the gospel demands the killing of one's idols. You see, what had happened in Beverly's parents' lives is that uh, they had come to a saving knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ, and when they came, became confronted with who He was as being the one true God. They realized that there was no room in their heart and in their world for any other God. They literally smashed. The God that they have been worshiping their whole lives. Why? She goes on to write, she says, An idol is something that we look to for the things that only God can give. And according to the Bible, idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, and they obey them. She goes on to say, To practice idolatry is to be a slave. You see, friends, we're a slave to whatever it is we worship. And God says, there is no place for other gods where I am, because I am the one true God. The New Testament makes this connection between um, slavery, right? Romans 8, 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Perfect love casts off fear. And it's saying, hey, if, if you are a slave to something that isn't... If you're a slave to God, there is no fear. But if you're a slave to something that's other than God, if you have another God that you worship, then you will be racked with fear. Friends, why did I mention that verse in particular? Well, I would say this. As we talk about removal, a fearful season like what we're living in right now with the coronavirus is actually... One of the best times to identify and remove idols from our lives. Pay attention right now to where you are reacting in fear. Fear is one of the chief revealers of our idols because what's happening during times like these, when we become afraid, it's because our idol, what we have gone to our whole lives uh, and trusted, right? and obeyed and placed our love and we've said you're going to provide for me it's being threatened and so fear is trying to protect that which really uh, if it's a true god we shouldn't have to protect it in the first place i think god would say in the midst of that as you see these idols revealed destroy them what does destruction look like well biblically it's this idea of repentance It's turning away from it and turning to God. And so, in part, it's going to God and saying, God, I confess to you that I have other loves, other things that I give my life to and depend on more than you. Forgive me. You are the only true God. There is no other. Now, I would say repentance to him is one piece, but he gives us a horizontal plane, too, of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And I would just say, uh, I have... I have not seen people effectively remove idols from their lives if they just simply keep it between them and God, but it is when they out themselves to community. And so, friends, as we are wracked with fear and as the Lord puts his finger on the idols of our life, be it health or comfort or materialism or whatever that may be, confess it to another brother or sister in Christ. Have them hold you accountable and pray for you as you walk that road. Let me move on to replace. So if there's removal, something is going to fill that gap, right? That vacuum cannot remain empty because we, by nature, and how God created us, are worshipers. And so the second thing I want us to look at is this idea of replacing. Pick back up with me in verses 5 to 7. He continues, he says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make your habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of the herd of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and shall rejoice you and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And so do you see what's being replaced here first off? He didn't just say, remove them and just go do whatever you want, whatever's right in your own eyes. No, he's saying, as you remove their name from that place, my name moves in. He says, seek the place that the Lord your God will choose, verse 5, out of your tribes and put his name in his habitation there. And so he's saying, I'm moving in where these false gods once were. Now his moving in, And that replacing isn't just something that we cook up, right? It's not something that's in ourselves. We don't just find this new God. No, he says, find the place that the Lord your God will choose. It's his choice. It's not ours. We are to seek the place that he chooses in verse 5, and then go and bring what he's called them to in the law. If you read verses 5 and 6, that's basically what he commands uh, back uh, in in books like uh, the book of Leviticus. And so there's two things I want us to pay attention to. So as we replace, there's two forms of really worship that we see being instituted here, uh, and then we see it play out throughout the rest of Scripture. Part of that replacing is a corporate worship. Did you see what he's saying? He's saying, bring your tithes and your offerings. He's, he's saying, bring uh, your sacrifices, right? Uh, when you sin and rebel against me, he required a sacrifice. He's saying, bring it to the temple. You know, when, when Bob shows up with a goat, they're like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you sinned, right? And, and now you're bringing a goat. Like, I get that. So so there's a corporate nature to the worship of God's people. In the New Testament, we see this pictured in places like Ephesians 2. He says, In him you are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So uh, the temple kind of moves in among his people where he dwells with us. We see that played out by official worship services. Uh, where the church comes together on a weekly basis. 1 Corinthians 14 is one of those examples where God says, hey, when you meet, this is what orderly worship of me looks like. Here's a passage that we talked about a lot this week as a staff team. As we said, can we even do a virtual worship service? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, there is a corporate nature to our worship. Now, what on earth that looks like now in this season, I don't know. In fact, I would ask you to pray for the leadership of the church as we walk down this road. What does it look like for us to consider how to come together, stir one another up, not neglecting to meet together? Can we do it virtually? Can we do it in smaller groups where we keep good social distancing? I don't know, but but here's what I do know. Is that we cannot, cannot, cannot lose corporate worship. Friends, what we're doing right now, right, this virtual worship thing, it is a compromise, it's not a convenience. There's a little bit of a threat to this where You know, there's always this nervousness when you have internet church, right? People are like, well, I can just stay home in my PJs and watch it. Friends, what we're doing right now is compromising to a less than ideal situation. We never want to view it as just simply a convenience where we can sleep in and not get together. Being together, worshiping corporately is critical to our faith. God calls us to come together to read the Bible, To speak the Bible in prayer. To sing the Bible as we worship together. To listen to the Bible as we sit underneath preaching. And to see the Bible lived out as we watch the sacraments. But it's not only a corporate nature. There is an individual nature, right? To the replacing uh, of those gods, those false gods with the one true God. Let me just read this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so there's an individual level to this replacing uh, of the false gods with the one true God. And it's really governed by God's word. I didn't get into this. This was going to be totally different when this was a room full of people. But, but we also believe that the corporate worship is governed by God's word. The Heidelberg Catechism says that uh, essentially we worship him only in the way that he commands in his word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one. they call it the regulative principle of worship, but it says the only acceptable way to worship him is through that which was instituted by himself by the word. And so just like our corporate worship is governed by the word, our individual worship and understanding of God has to be governed by the word as well. And so as we replace and as we live in the age of the coronavirus, let me just, let me just encourage us to consider these things because what the Lord has done is He's totally interrupted our lives. He has totally interrupted our day to day lives. And so this is an opportunity to build new rhythms into our world and to consider what a life of worship looks like. And so as you think about the rhythms in this season, can I encourage you to look at these things? One, to incorporate the means of grace into your life. What the means of grace are essentially uh, the word and prayer and sacraments, right? Now, the sacraments, that's going to be challenging for a while. but, But right now in your individual worship, this is a perfect opportunity to develop habits of being in God's word because it is the conduit that God funnels His grace into our hearts through the power of His Holy Spirit. Prayer. Parents, here is an opportunity right everything stopped sports have stopped all of our crazy intramural and youth sports have stopped we're stuck in the house with each other right now what an awesome opportunity to shepherd our young ones hearts towards the lord small groups friends we can still meet together in small groups now i don't i don't want to cause a firestorm social distancing still a thing but But how can we develop into the lives of one another and pour into the lives of one another um, conversations around the Word, prayer around the Word? This morning, before one of my friends who I meet with regularly uh, went off to work, we FaceTimed each other. And we said, brother, how can I pray for you before this really hard meeting? And we did. We stopped, we prayed, we talked about God's Word, and then he launched off into a really challenging meeting. How can we do that in this day and age? Rhythms. Can we build new rhythms into our lives? Starting with prayer, turning off our phones so that we can be present with one another and present with the Lord. Let's keep going. you got removal. you got replacing. Now you have rest. Let me read verses 9 to 12 for us. For you have not as yet come... Sorry, let me start all over again. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, doing what was right in our own lives, or in our own eyes. Verse 9, "...for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies all around so that you live in safety, then..." to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levites within your towns, since He has no portion or inheritance with you. Friends, did you notice that word rest in verse 10? He's saying uh, there at verse 9, he says, You're not quite there yet, but before they even go into the land, he's saying, there will be a day where you will enter in to rest. You see, a God that ushers his people into rest was actually a pretty foreign concept back then. Right over the river in Canaan, you have people who are constantly and frenetically trying to appease their gods. You have pictures that even in extreme cases when people feel like, ah, my God's not listening, you know what they did? They sacrificed their children to them. That's not rest. That's not a God of rest. It's a God of extremes. That's a God of exhaustion. But that is a God that will never yield rest. Now the rest here conveys simply peace after warfare, but it gives way to a theologically rich term that we see throughout the rest of Scripture And this idea that the well-being, or it's this idea of rest being the well-being of God's people in God's place under God's rule. It points back to the seventh day of creation, Sabbath rest. And it also points us forward to places like Hebrews 3 and 4, where it talks about Jesus being our eternal rest. Friends, where there is no rest or rejoicing in our lives, and I am very guilty of falling into that category. It calls us to stop and examine our hearts and look at the false God that we're actually serving. Because the God that we follow actually calls us into seasons of rest. That's why there's one day a week built in for Sabbath. It's idolatry when we are constantly worn out, spending our lives trying to appease something that will always demand more. That's what false gods do. They always demand more. In our God, the demands were satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, I wonder right now, if in our crazy, frenetic, neurotic, never-stopping culture, if there's some aspect of this where God wants to teach His modern American church to chill out and to rest in Him. My friends, I realize this does not feel like rest to many of us. It feels like angst. But I wonder if this is a season of forced unhurry. Already in our neighborhood, I'm seeing our neighbors go, we took a walk with our family today. My family was sitting there, we were bored today, and we said, let's just circle the wagons and, and read some scripture. And we did. It was beautiful. And we rested. We thought. We read books. We read our Bibles just to do it. Can we look at this time where we're not working and the kids aren't in school to foster this idea of, hey, this is a taste of the rest that's to come in the person of Jesus Christ. May we actually uh, participate in the deeply theological practice of sleep. Psalm 4, 8. In peace I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. That was my prayer last night before my head hit the pillow for myself and many others, saying, Lord, help me to believe deeply that you and you alone, not a quarantine, not social distancing, but you and you alone are the only thing that makes me to dwell in safety. Finally, there's this idea of rejoicing. Did you hear it? Verse 7, verse 12, he's saying, hey, there will be a day in the land of rejoicing. Our God is a God who loves rejoicing. Now, I want you to remember that that the Israelites were looking across the river into Canaan where they were getting ready to go to war. That's frightening, right? Just like what we face is frightening. But even in the midst of that, he's saying, but look ahead to a day of rejoicing. How can that be? How can that be? When we go back to this idea of slavery, right, that we talked about being a slave to fear. Romans 6:22 and 23. Well in verse 18 it says, you've been set free from sin. And it says now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to your sanctification and in its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, Friends, as we stare down this virus, the worst thing I could do is tell you it's all going to be fine. None of us is going to suffer. We already read in John 16 or heard where Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Jesus Christ, we have eternal life and eternal rejoicing. Friends, that is the Christian's hope. Nothing else. It's not longevity. It's not a lack of suffering. It's the hope that through Jesus Christ, we have overcome death because he has overcome death. And it's because of that, Jesus can say even in tribulation that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. As we think about this idea of rejoicing, let me just read this to you from Romans 12, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes this, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice in hope. You know, the church lasted through the Cyprian plagues, the Roman Empire, the smallpox outbreaks, where Puritan ministers in the Northeast lost a third of their family and a third of their congregations. But they were able to maintain hope because they thought of eternity. They prayed. God calls us to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer. And then it says this. It says, contribute to your neighbor. Friends, we are to love right now in this season. Not because it's duty, but because... Of the love that's been demonstrated and shown to us sacrificially. How can we contribute to the needs of those within the church in this season? And how can we show hospitality to those outside of the church? Maybe it's not coming over for dinner, but maybe it's looking for those who are more vulnerable. And bringing food to them. Offering prayer to them. Do you know how many of my non-believing friends have mentioned prayer in the last week in my neighborhood? And can I also say this? Be bold right now. Share the gospel right now. Not a person living today has gone through something like we are going through right now, where we are faced with our frailty and our eternity, and it touches every tribe, tongue, and nation. Friends, this is when we take the opportunity to share about the Savior who died for every tribe and tongue and nation, and that even if the coronavirus ends their lives, their eternal life will be saved through him. That is our hope, and that is our most important message right now. So how do we set our eyes upon the Lord during these days of the coronavirus? We remove any other idols in our lives that will only serve to make us slaves. We replace those false gods with worship of the true God as he prescribes it in his word. And we rest and rejoice in what He has done and what He will do to bring us eternal life. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we need You desperately right now. Will You bring peace in our hearts, not uh, because we followed the CDC appropriate measures, but because we have set our hearts on You, our one true hope. Lord, we do not know what to do. But Lord, help us set our eyes on you as we walk this uncertain road. We love you. Thanks for this time. In your name, amen. And friends, I'm going to give you a virtual benediction. I don't know how that works, if that's even okay to do. But it doesn't matter, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, And this is just a very fitting one. It's one of my favorites. I use it a good bit. And so uh, as we close, hear these words of blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, because you can't muster that in yourself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Go in peace.